Are you a follower of Jesus? Or are you a spectator of Jesus? I'm just looking around the room and I believe there are many, many followers of Jesus here tonight. I've seen the evidence in your guys' life. I've seen the fruit in your life. There's so much fruit of the Spirit in this room. It looks like the produce section at Smith's. (laughs) But we all have sin, don't we? We all struggle with sin, ongoing sin. And so we all have spectator tendencies. Observing Jesus, but not obeying him. Watching Jesus, but not walking with him. It's so easy for us to treat Jesus like our favorite TV show. He's in our weekly rhythm. He entertains us. He moves us. Maybe even makes us cry. But he doesn't affect our daily life. Jesus is worth watching, observing, spectating, not walking with, obeying, and following. As we turn to Matthew 4 tonight, where I go, I know you guys are tired. It's going to be so tempting for us to sit back and be spectators. But let's not settle for that, Desert Springs. Let's not settle for that. Let's press in. Let's get closer. Let's push through the crowds and get close to Jesus and do whatever he tells us to do. If you'll do that, if you'll leave everything and follow the king, you'll enter his kingdom and gain everything. That's what we're going to look at tonight. If you'll leave everything and follow the king, you'll enter his kingdom and gain everything. If you'll give up earth, you'll gain heaven. Matthew 4, starting in verse 18. But walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. 
before we get into the sermon points for tonight, let's orient ourselves to Matthew. It's been a minute since we've been in Matthew, uh, back in the winter. But if you remember back to the winter, Matthew has been building a case that Jesus is the true and better Israel. The true and better Israel. In chapter 2, Jesus comes out of Egypt just like Israel does in the Exodus. In chapter 3, Jesus goes through the River Jordan just like Israel goes through the Red Sea and the River Jordan. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, Jesus is tested for 40 days in the wilderness and obeys in contrast to Israel disobeying in the wilderness for 40 years. In chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, Jesus is the promised Israelite king, David's greater son, who fulfills Isaiah 9, bringing the light of the kingdom of heaven to a people dwelling in darkness. And if we cheat and look ahead a little bit, in chapters 5 through 7, we see Jesus ascending a mountain and he gives the law, like Moses ascended Mount Sinai and relayed the law. Matthew doesn't want us to miss it. Jesus is the true and better Israel. He is Israel's perfect king. And in the first few verses of our passage tonight, there are two big developments that I want us to look at. Two big developments of how Jesus is true Israel. First big development is that Jesus starts building his new covenant people, the Israel of God. Until verse 19, all of the focus has been on Jesus, right? It's just been on Jesus' ministry. But in verse 19, when the four disciples become fishers of men, they are joined in the ministry of Jesus that we saw in verses 12 through 17. Jesus invites them to share the light of the kingdom of heaven. And united to the true king of Israel, they become true Israel as well. God's promised new covenant people that the Old Testament prophets were looking forward to. These four disciples are the early building blocks of the 12 disciples that we're going to see in Matthew chapter 10 later. The 12 disciples, which correspond to and fulfill the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus didn't just pick 12 disciples because 12 was his favorite number. Or that there were only 12 qualified individuals to apply to be his disciple. No, 12, the number 12 has a lot of significance in biblical theology. 12 represents the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God. And these four disciples begin that fulfillment. The second big development in Jesus as true Israel is that Jesus commands his new covenant people to go and tell. Go and tell. Until this point, up to this point in Matthew, and really all the way up through the Old Testament, the message has been to come and see. Up to this point in Israel's history, the command was for the nations to come and see the people of God. But now Jesus tells the people of God to go and tell the nations about the kingdom. He tells these fishermen that he's going to make them fishers of men. 
And unless you're David Gregory or Marvin Gibson, the fish don't just come to you. You have to go out and get them. Which is what Peter, Andrew, James, and John do. The people of God are now on the offensive. Leaving everything in their boats, following Jesus to the nations. Our first point tonight is leave everything and follow the king. Leave everything behind and follow the king. When the four disciples followed Jesus, they left everything. Everything. In Matthew 19, verse 27, that was the language, the word that Peter used to summarize what he left to follow Jesus. Everything. And like many of us here tonight, everything for these disciples meant their work and their family. They left their work. Verse 18, they were fishermen. Fishing was probably all that they knew. This is how they paid the bills. This was their future. At least for James and John, it was a, a bright future. We see in Mark 1, 20, a companion passage to this story. It says that Zebedee, James and John's father, had others working for him. This wasn't a rinky-dink fishing enterprise. No, there was cash flow. There was stability for these disciples. And they left everything. They also left their family. Verse 22 says, they left their father. I'm sure they loved their dad. I mean, he was in the family business. They spent a lot of time with him. Early mornings, getting ready to leave. I'm sure lots of deep conversation, lots of joking, lots of late nights mending their nets together. I'm sure they were close to their dad. They left. They left everything. Are you willing to leave everything? Are you willing to leave everything? Every good thing happening in your life right now. And not just are you willing, are you eager to leave everything behind to follow Jesus? Not just willing. Willingness can stall out in theoretical possibilities, right? I mean, there are a lot of things that I'm willing to do that I'm never going to do. I'm willing to live in North Dakota. Am I ever going to live in North Dakota? Sure hope not. <laughs> Being willing to leave everything is good, but it often translates as inaction. Eagerness is different. Eagerness is more likely to move into practical action. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In his joy. The man was not just willing to sell everything and follow Jesus. He was eager to sell everything. Brought him joy. 
There's this tension I feel, though. Maybe you feel it. On the one hand, Jesus just told his disciples to leave everything. Leave their work and their family. But on the other hand, we have 1 Timothy 6, 17. It says that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy, which would include work and family. Leaving everything, enjoying everything. Both are on the table. There's a way I could preach this sermon that would make you leave and feel like the only right response is to order off the dollar menu at McDonald's for the rest of your life. Anything more would be extravagant. But that's not what 1 Timothy 6.17 is saying, and that's not what Matthew 4 is commanding. And yet on the other hand, I think a God-glorifying, obedient action for some of you would be to leave this sermon and think, you know what? For the glory of God and for the sake of the Great Commission, I'm only going to order off the dollar menu at McDonald's. Do you feel this tension of Matthew 4 and 1 Timothy 6? This tension of leaving everything and enjoying everything. How do we relieve it? And on a practical note, in the moment, how do we decide between getting something and giving something up? Feasting or fasting? Well, first, there's a time for both. There's a time to feast and there's a time to fast. For Jesus, there was a time to multiply bread on the mountain, and there was a time for him to say no to bread in the wilderness. For disciples of Jesus, there's a time to buy expensive perfume because you're going to a party, and there's a time to pour out your expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus. There's a time to buy a car, and there's a time to give a car away. Recognizing that there's a time for both, a time for feasting and a time for fasting gets us close to relieving the tension. But you guys should still feel some tension. Because how will we know whether it's a time to feast or a time to fast? We should do both, but how do we decide in the moment which one to do? I wonder if you felt that before. Do we just flip a coin? Strive for balance? No. There's nothing inherently Christian about that strategy. Spectators do that. We're not striving for balance, we're striving for obedience. So how do we actually relieve this tension? How do we relieve the tension? Only one way. Following Jesus. Following Jesus is the only way to relieve the tension. If we seek first his kingdom, Jesus will later say, Matthew 6, 33. If we seek first his kingdom, then feasting and fasting will be added unto us. It's in his light, the light of Christ, that we see light. That light is shed on whether we should feast or fast. 
It's when Jesus is the goal, when we're seeking to follow Jesus. In submission to his word and in community with his church, his spirit will lead us down paths of leaving everything and paths of enjoying everything. And church, there's so many benefits of living life this way. So many benefits of feasting or fasting, getting or giving while you're following Jesus. The first benefit is that the ultimate goal is not to be balanced. The ultimate goal is not to be balanced. Refraining from getting too much or giving up too much. We're not just trying to stay out of the gutters, which is my only goal whenever I bowl, just staying out of the gutters. There's something more following Jesus. I understand the wisdom of being balanced. I do. And maybe we could say even that most of the time, being balanced will land you in the right position. But with that said, Jesus did and he said some pretty imbalanced things. Right? When you think about John's gospel, how John's gospel starts. Jesus saving a party with lots and lots of wine. And think about the end of John's gospel. Jesus telling Peter that he's going to be martyred for the faith. Live wisely. But maybe some of you should throw a party this Friday night. And maybe some of you should blow off retirement and die in Afghanistan preaching the gospel. Or some of you should retire in Albuquerque and live the next 20 years in a nice home because that's the most God-glorifying, obedient path. Don't miss what I'm saying here. Don't miss the freedom you have in Christ. Coming out of this sermon, some of you should buy something. Some of you should sell something. Some of you should just keep doing what you're doing and live a quiet and godly life. But all of us should follow Jesus. All of us should follow the King. This is not a call to do something wild that may or may not be the best path, the most obedient path. This is a call to follow Jesus. A call to follow Jesus. Not necessarily what feels balanced. Following Jesus is wise, but it's not always conservative. The second benefit of feasting and fasting while you're following Jesus is that you're fellowshipping with Jesus. You're spending time with him. You're communing with him. We don't want to just fast or feast. We want to feast with Jesus. We don't want to just fast. We want to fast with Jesus. If you're buying or you're selling merely out of trying to be balanced, you're not enjoying Jesus in that decision. You're not communing with Jesus. You're not fellowshipping with Jesus. 
But when you follow Jesus, you get to fellowship with Jesus wherever he takes you. So let's follow him, guys. Let's follow him wherever he takes us. Let's follow him. You may be wondering how. How? What, what does it look like to follow Jesus? We keep on saying that. What does that actually look like? Well, we've got the five W questions. The five W questions. Who, what, when, where, and why. Which, just as a side note, as you guys are reading the Bible, personally, you're reading the Bible with friends and family, these are great questions to ask. The five W questions. First one is who? Who should you follow? And our text says, Jesus. Follow me, Jesus says. Christianity does not rest upon an idea or concepts. It rests upon a person. Spectators of Christ. Spectators reduce Christianity to ideas or concepts that fit their real gods. The gods that they are actually following. We see this in politics all the time. Following conservatism or following liberalism and then finding biblical principles to fit our conservative or our liberal thought. Bible verses fill the bibliography of our lives, but our actual biographies are strung together by political principles that guide us. Friends, King Jesus will not be a footnote in your political biography. He will not bow to your political gods. He tells you, he tells us, and all of our ideas and all of our agendas to bow the knee to him. He is the only king calls us to bow our knees to him, to follow him. Well, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean? First, it means to believe and obey. Believe in Christ for salvation and obey Christ in submission. Following Jesus begins with personal faith and personal repentance, which we'll get to more in the second point. But to paraphrase, paraphrase Mark Dever, who Chase mentioned earlier, Following Jesus is personal, but it's not private. Not private. It's personal and corporate. Disciples of Christ are disciple makers for Christ. Following Jesus is more than making disciples, but it's not less than making disciples. In our text tonight, it's one of, if not the greatest component of following Jesus. What does he tell the disciples? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Following Jesus and making disciples are intertwined. And I just love that he calls out Peter first. I just love that he calls out Peter first. Because Peter wasn't impressive and I resonate with that. Peter didn't have a seminary degree. He wasn't reliable. Out of fear, he denied Jesus and his people. 
He wasn't a very good evangelist, at least not at first. Instead of sharing the gospel with unbelievers, what do we see him do? He's cutting off their ears. It's not good evangelism. Side note. And he was the pillar of the church. (laughs) God used him. And the gospel spread like wildfire through guys like Peter. We should find encouragement here. It doesn't matter who you are. God can make you a fisher of men. It doesn't matter even if the past few months of 2 and 22 haven't looked very good for you. They haven't been going so well. If you're new to DSC, we started an initiative at the beginning of the year that we asked all of our members to share the gospel with two non-Christians that they know. Two non-Christians. And if you're anything like me, you've hit some bumps in the road since January. You've hit some bumps in the road and maybe you've blown a tire or two. So here's what I thought as I was preparing for this. We're about halfway through this initiative. I thought it may be a good idea to assess where we are. I thought, how cool would it be if we could hire some evangelism consultants? What if we could hire these four fishermen, these four disciples of Jesus, to come in and ask us some questions to help us in our evangelism? I'm not sure what they would say. I'm not sure the questions they would ask. But here are three that I think they may ask. First is, are you fishing alone? Are you fishing alone? I love personal evangelism. I love it. Keep pressing into personal evangelism. But John, one of the sons of Zebedee, will later record Jesus saying that one of the most strategic evangelistic approaches is to do evangelism in community. Corporate evangelism. John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 17, verse 23. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Max Stiles, who is not one of the 12 disciples, but still very wise, calls this corporate evangelism mob evangelism. And I think John would have loved that phrase. Because I think one of his first pieces of advice to us is to think about how we can connect our non-Christian friends with our Christian friends. The second question I think they may have asked us is, are you fishing where the fish are? Are you fishing where the fish are? Are you spending time with non-Christians? Do you have non-Christian friends? John 17, verses 15 through 16. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Not of the world, but evangelistically in the world. My wife, Leah, challenged me on this as we were getting to know each other in college. She had non-Christian friends. Actual friends. Like they did stuff together. 
And I was sharing the gospel, and I think pretty faithfully, but I didn't really have any non-Christian friends. But you know what? As I saw Leah, she was pouring her life and and developing these non-Christian friends. Do you know what I saw? Fruit. (laughs) I saw evangelistic fruit. Just think about your own testimonies. Think about your own testimonies. How did you come to know the Lord? If we heard everyone's testimonies tonight, I think it would probably be, with a few exceptions, hearing the gospel from from family and friends. People who were investing long-term in our lives. If we want to see Albuquerque come to know the Lord, we've got to get to know them. We have to spend time with them. We have to start building non-Christian friendships. One tip here. If you're wanting to build non-Christian friendships, friends with non-Christians, pick a hobby where there's built-in community. I think this is one of the most helpful ways to grow in evangelism. Pick a hobby where there's built-in community. Do what you like. Do what you like. Just do it with non-Christians. You don't have to pick something you dislike to be a witness for Christ. No offense to all of you knitters out there, but if I joined the Albuquerque Knitting Club, that would be evangelistically disastrous for Albuquerque. I made pot holders as a kid, and they weren't very good. Knitting is not my thing, but maybe it's your thing. So join the knitting club for the glory of God, for the sake of the lost. Some members here, Alex Beauchamp, Emily Kaliza, and Natalie France, are just crushing it at this. Not knitting, but they, maybe they're good at knitting, I don't know, but they've joined the climbing gym together. And I think all three of them like climbing, but they joined it intentionally because Alex has a non-Christian friend who's also climbing. And since they're doing this together, they're tying in mob evangelism, which was the first piece of advice, with their existing hobbies. So I just encourage you, if you have questions about what this looks like, how to grow in this, go find any of those three sisters, and I know they would love to help you with that. The third question, last question they may ask us is, how long are you fishing? Our evangelism consultants, the four disciples, they may ask us, how long are you fishing? Acts 2, 46 through 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Evangelism was a daily rhythm for the early disciples. So many testimonies include one-off gospel conversations. So many. I know some of you. So many have included one-off gospel conversations, and God uses them. But again, most of our testimonies include folks who regularly shared the gospel with us. So if we want Albuquerque to know the Lord, it's going to take time, actual time, actual Tuesday evenings and Friday nights 
It's going to take our time. And because you guys are busy, you're probably going to need to cut some stuff out of your schedule to make this happen. Some of you may be too busy to actually have non-Christian friends. And so one result of tonight is you have to reassess your schedule and just ask yourself, do I have time to become friends with non-Christians? Do I have the time? If you don't have the time, there's something in your schedule that needs to be taken out. Because there are not Christians who are fishers of men and Christians who aren't fishers of men. What did Jesus say? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They came together. It's a package deal. There are not Christians who are fishers of men and Christians who aren't fishers of men. There are Christians who are fishers of men and there are non-Christians. Is this the lifestyle you want? Do you want to be a disciple maker? If you don't, it's a sign you may be a spectator, not a follower. Other W question is when? When should you follow Jesus? And our text says immediately, verse 20 and verse 22. Immediately the disciples left everything and followed Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, today is the day of salvation. Today, leave everything immediately. What's keeping you in your boat? What's keeping you in your boat? Stop watching Jesus. Start walking with him today, immediately. And then keep walking with him. Keep walking with him every day. If you're a Christian here tonight, I know that's most of you. Every morning we wake up and we have to get out of the boat, right? We have to decide what's going to get us out of the boat to follow Jesus. Every morning we wake up in the boat and we have to leave our nets and follow Jesus. Give it some thought. What nets are you holding on to tonight? What nets are you not dropping to follow Jesus? Another W question is where? Where should you follow Jesus? Anywhere he takes you. Anywhere he takes you. The four disciples didn't know where they were going. But verse 23 says, Jesus went throughout all Galilee. With around 200 cities and villages in Galilee and at least 15,000 people in each. This would have taken three months with no days off. Three months. This was hard work. This is how they began their ministry. This is where Jesus took them. And then they ended, their earthly ministries ended in violent and lonely deaths. But from start to finish, their lives were, as David Platt says, blank checks. Blank checks before the Lord. Allowing the king to fill in whatever he wanted from them, wherever he wanted to take them. When was the last time you prayed God, how do you want to use my life? Where do you want me to go? I'll go anywhere. I'll stay here for the rest of my life. I'll go anywhere for the rest of my life. Where do you want me to go? When was the last time you prayed that? It's been a while. Pray it tonight. Where does Jesus want 
you to go here or to the nations. Selling everything and moving overseas, is that what he wants? Taking out the trash and doing the dishes tonight? Whether this prayer that you come before the Lord tonight with leads you to do something radical or something very ordinary, I can guarantee you one thing. If you'll follow through, if you'll obey him, you will not be disappointed. You won't be disappointed. Last W question is why? Why should you follow Jesus? And to answer that question, why do you think the disciples got out of the boat? What do you think made them get out of the boat and follow Jesus? Maybe because of Luke 5, 1 through 11. Maybe because of Luke 5, 1 through 11. We won't read this, but we see in Luke 5, a companion passage to our text tonight, is that Jesus did a miracle that these disciples saw and then called them to follow him. So maybe these disciples didn't have any prior knowledge of Jesus. They see the miracle and they think, whoever does that is worth following. If he can do this, I'm going to follow him. Maybe that's what it was that got them out of the boat. Or maybe we get our answer from our passage here in chapter 4 and actually bumping up to verses 16 through 17. Verses 16 and 17 where they saw a great light. They saw the light of Christ. In verse 17 where we see that Jesus was preaching, saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Maybe they saw the light of Christ. Maybe they heard the message of Christ. Maybe it was a mixture of the miracle that we heard about in Luke 5 and maybe it was a mixture of what they heard or what they saw, we don't exactly know. But either way, it was the supremacy of Christ that got them out of the boat. The supremacy of Christ. Why should you follow Jesus? Because of who Jesus is and what he has done. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done, which shine most brightly in the gospel of the kingdom. Our second point, which will be brief, our second point is enter the kingdom and gain everything. Enter the kingdom and gain everything. How do you enter the kingdom? How do you move from being a spectator to a follower? Verse 23. You enter the kingdom by believing the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. And what's that? Starts with a God. A God who didn't need anything. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perfectly satisfied, perfectly happy in himself because of his own perfections. God was not bored before Genesis 1. No, he was perfectly happy. Perfectly content in himself. And the gospel of the kingdom says that out of that overflow of joy, he created humanity. Humans made in the image of God to reflect him, to participate in the joy of who God is. And he gave us good commands, right? 
good commands, commands for our good, not for our bad. To love and to pursue peace. And we've looked at his commands and you guys know this, we've broken, we've broken all of them. Because God is holy and because he's just, because we are unholy and because we are unjust, he looks at us and he has to punish sin. He has to punish sin. And since he is infinite in his holiness, that means that the punishment is infinite. The crime has infinite consequences because of who was sinned against. And that's God's infinite, eternal wrath in hell. That's what the message of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom says. That we deserve wrath. And yet there's good news. There's good news, right? Jesus, God the Son, came down to earth to take the punishment that our sins deserved. The punishment that should have fallen on us. And he offers us his righteousness that we didn't deserve. He offers us forgiveness. He offers us a relationship with him. And if you're a spectator, and you hear that, you see that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and that he rose again, defeating death, and you want to follow Jesus, you can. You can tonight. You can enter the kingdom. You can enter the kingdom. And the gospel of the kingdom goes on to say that Jesus will come back. And he'll restore everything. There won't be any more school shootings. He'll restore everything in his kingdom. He'll restore all the brokenness and the new heavens, and the new earth. If you'll enter the kingdom, you'll gain everything in Christ. This future hope filled Jesus' teaching. And then in the end of verse 23, and moving through verse 25, this gets really good. Jesus gives a preview of this future restoration. What happens after Jesus proclaims the gospel, the good news of the kingdom? Widespread restoration. Look down at these last three verses with me. Jesus healed every disease, verse 23. He healed every affliction, verse 23. His fame went throughout all Syria, which was way outside of Israel, verse 24. He had a following in the Decapolis and beyond the Jordan, meaning he had a multi-ethnic following. He healed all the sick, those afflicted, verse 24. And great crowds followed him. What's going on here? Heaven stuff. Heaven stuff. Do you remember that? Chase Coyne, maybe one of my favorite praises I've ever heard him say. Heaven stuff. When Jesus shows up, heaven stuff happens. And just for a moment, we see what happens when the kingdom of heaven that Jesus was preaching in verse 17 comes to earth. His miracles in verses 24 and 25 are not just mere party tricks. 
Jesus was not just going for the wow factor. No, they are a preview of the new heavens and the new earth. When everything wrong on earth will be made right. Like it was in the Garden of Eden. When Jesus heals in the Gospels, they are little glimpses. They are a peek behind the curtain of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. His miracles are kind of like movie trailers. Movie trailers. I've got a love-hate relationship with movie trailers. On one hand, I love them. As they, they whet my appetite right, for the, the movie that's going to come up that I'm about to watch that I'm planning to watch. In one sense, I love movie trailers. But on the other hand, in another sense, I hate them. Because they almost always end up giving the story away, right? And so that's why I usually pause it around a minute into the trailer. I don't want to see what happens at the end. I don't want to see the preview, the full preview of what happens at the end of the movie, the end of the story. You've got to know Satan hated this movie trailer. You've got to know he hated it. You've got to know he hated verses 24 and 25 and how they previewed his demise, his ultimate destruction, the final eternal reversal of the fall in Genesis 3. You can just picture him scrambling to find the remote, trying to press pause on this preview of his destruction. He hates to watch his future demise. And he also hates it when you watch your future restoration. Even tonight, Satan would love to press pause on the preview of your future glory. And one of his tricks is the prosperity gospel. I hate the prosperity gospel. I hate it. For a lot of reasons. So many reasons. For one, it's not true. 2 Timothy 3.12 says the godly will suffer. Number two, it also lifts up prosperity as the main gain of the gospel above Jesus, which is not maximizing our joy. It's a false gospel. I could go on. There are so many obvious reasons why the prosperity gospel should be something we hate. But there's one subtle yet devastating ramification of the prosperity gospel that I want to think about for a little bit. And it's that it's made many godly Christians, maybe some of you, who believe the true gospel apprehensive of meditating on the health, wealth, and prosperity that's laid up for you in heaven. And in an effort to preserve the gospel of the kingdom on earth, you have an impoverished view of the kingdom of, in heaven. You and so many others are battling all sorts of diseases and pains, seizures, bad livers, cancer. And through the prosperity gospel, Satan has paused the trailer of your future restoration. You've let him pause that trailer. He wants to pause it again tonight. But friends, 
Jesus has the remote. Jesus has the remote, and he's on his throne in heaven. And since Colossians 3.3 is true, and our life is hidden with Christ in God, we're with Jesus on his throne too. And Satan can't climb up that high. He's too short. He can't get to the remote. He can't silence the word of God, and he can't stop the church of God. So play the trailer of your future restoration. Play it all. Identify the suffering in your life right now. Think about it. Think about the suffering in your life and in the lives of those you love, the lives of those that you're concerned about. And then meditate often on your glorification and the hope of the new heavens of the new earth. Preview your glory. One of the best ways we preview our future restoration is at the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. As often as we eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until, what church? Until he comes. He's going to come back. One day, Jesus will come back. We'll join the great crowd of the redeemed from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And he will heal every disease, every affliction. And we'll trade this meal, the Lord's Supper, for an even better meal the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we're looking forward to that day. And Jesus, we're saying, come quickly. We see the pain in the world, and we see the pain in the lives of those around us, and we feel the pain inside of us, and we say, come quickly. And until that day, Father, as we celebrate this meal as we celebrate what you have done on the cross and how you have secured our eternal restoration in the new heavens and the new earth. Father, we ask that you would give us hope. That you give us confidence. The suffering will last just for a moment longer. But for eternity, we will experience only blessing, only good, only happiness, only Restoration. In your son's name. Amen.